Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Port Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 204th episode of the Nauticast, titled Ghost Stories, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Bran 4, in which Team Bran arrives at the Night Fort to find that all the stories about this place are true. Well, not really. Kind of? It's confusing. It's all lies, but they're entertaining lies. And in the end, isn't that the real truth? The answer is no. (laughs) I guess our work is done here. And we're very excited to have on our special guest for this episode. I've uh, had them on for a previous episode, a solo episode on our own. But first time on the main cast, please welcome uh, Lo, a.k.a. Loda Links. Thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you for having me. So for those who don't know me, I'm Lo, and my pronouns are they, them. Some of you might know me as Loda Links from various social media sites or fandom slacks or discords. I also have a blog, uh, loadlinks.wordpress.com, where I post analysis of Acewolf and other media focusing on social structures and norms, mainly surrounding gender, sexuality, class, race, and disability. I'm also starting a new podcast uh, called Ragman's Harbor with my friend Virginie, who some of you might know from different Acewolf spaces. We're going to talk Acewolf and parallels to real-world history and culture, but from the perspective of people who don't come from English-speaking countries. And we're also hoping to have on various guests from different parts of the world to uplift different perspectives in the fandom. The first episode should be up around the time when this episode comes out, so keep an eye out on social media. Yeah, that's so exciting. That's we'll great. link to that in the description of this episode in our, uh, in our advertisements for it. That's so exciting. So, our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for the five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron Simon Says, who asks, Most of the Nightfort ghost stories go into detail, but what's up with Mad Axe? Is there supposed to be some moral there? Thanks. And that's true. Uh, Mad Axe is not lingered upon in this story relative to something like Night's King or the Rat Cook. So what do you think? Is there is there something we're supposed to take away from that? Is there something to it other than just a uh, man with axe? If I wasn't lazy, I would have like peeked ahead to Tyrion's last chapter in the book and see if he stalks into Tywin's privy, like shoeless, you know, very quiet-like. Um, but I, like I am it. unfortunately very lazy, so I did not do that. <laughs> and uh, that's the moral. And I think we are going to talk about how a lot of the stories, or basically all of them except the Mad Axemen, tie into some aspect of either something we've seen before or something we expect to happen or ties into the broader mythology. Uh, the Mad Axemen, I think, just is really nicely used to add some dramatic tension in the moment when Sam's arriving. So as Bran starts hearing the noises, as Sam's slowly, you know, walking up the well, um, we're able to get one more story in there. So it kind of adds a nice little, like, thematic coherence to it. This has been a chapter about stories. So we get one last story, but use it to actually forward kind of the moment, the plot, uh, rather than kind of building into the backstory or characterization. So I think it's just a story used in a different way than the other stories in this chapter, um, but I don't see it have any bigger tie-in. I don't think Stannis in A Dream of Spring is going to be killed by the ghost of the Mad Axeman right after he burns Shireen or anything. <laughs> I can I can see it. I can see it. What do you think, Lo? Yeah, I mean, uh, like Simon says, kind of gets into that most of these stories have some sort of moral or like some lesson about society or culture, but not really Mad Axe. Um, 
to me, it just reminds me of the Axemen of New Orleans, uh, the true crime uh, story or whatever you want to call it, um, I, that I first heard because I had a period when I was obsessed with BuzzFeed Unsolved uh, on YouTube. <laughs> um, so it, it, to me, it's just like a scary story, a scary legend that people uh, tell you about. And like Manu said, it helps with the the tension of everything. So I, I don't think this one has a moral or anything, more just tension building. Yeah, totally agree with both of you. A lot of the way that uh, George uses stories in this chapter reminds me of uh, Stephen King specifically and some of his stories were like it, where there's like a, a lot of stories about the given monster or whatever it is. They'll just kind of put in interludes or flashbacks where the monster has different sorts of attacks. That's kind of the structure of this chapter. And uh, in, very specifically in, in It, there's a bit where a statue of Paul Bunyan comes to life and starts hunting one of the kids with like his giant plastic axe, um, which is uh, scarier than, but also exactly as funny as it sounds. And th- that just, it reminds me a little bit of that. And a couple of, Stephen King loves killing people with axes. Very specifically, that pops up in The Shining as well. And a bunch of his stories, who knows why. Uh, but it, re- it reminds me of that. And yeah, I think it is, it, it, adds, it adds a little bit of spooky texture, but the, they only really like, worthwhile fact we learn about it is that he was hunting specifically his own brother so it does raise the specter of of mutiny and the night's watch and the night's watch turning on each other which is relevant for john and elsie uh, mormont as well of course um but it is funny also just in the context of the night fort a place that has apparently seen a demon king making packs with the others that also there was once just a guy with an axe who went around with an axe and his main <laughs> thing is having an axe that's it's just so funny like 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 low scale compared to every other ghost story i just i just find it funny for that which you know it's true even if you're you manage to duck knight's king and rack and all the rest uh if mad axe gets you you're still in trouble so uh, thank you again to Simon Says for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our uh, sworn sword and higher tier patrons get to ask us questions and get other benefits, including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our main episodes. But we are here today to talk about A Storm of Swords Brand 4, so let's jump into the synopsis. It is only another empty castle. Mira Reed said as she gazed across the desolation of rubble, ruins, and weeds. No, thought Bran, it is the Night Fort, and this is the end of the world. Honestly, they both have a point. Bran is afraid, not only because of the Night Fort, but because of a horrible dream he slash Summer had about Rob slash Grey Wind. But he knows he has to be brave now, as brave as Rob would be. Pause here to cry, now moving on. Jojen says there's nothing to fear at the Night Fort, but Bran knows better. The Night Fort had figured in some of Old Nan's scariest stories. It was here that Night's King had reigned before his name was wiped from the memory of man. This was where the Rat Cook had served the Andal King his prince and bacon pie, where the 79 Sentinels stood their watch, where brave young Danny Flint had been raped and murdered. This was the castle where King Sherrod had called down his curse on the Andals of old, where the Prentice boys had faced the thing that came in the night, where blind Simeon Star Eyes had seen the Hellhounds fighting. Mad Axe had once walked these yards and climbed these towers, butchering his brothers in the dark. All that had happened hundreds and thousands of years ago, to be sure, and some maybe never happened at all. Maester Lewin always said that old Nan's stories shouldn't be swallowed whole. But once his uncle came to see Father, and Bran asked about the Night Fort. Benjamin Stark never said the tales were true, but he never said they weren't. He only shrugged and said, We left the Night Fort 200 years ago, as if that was an answer. I love that in the last chapter, John flashed back to Benjamin, giving him like this huge multi-paragraph detailed history about Castle Black. But when it comes to the Night Fort, uh, 
the less said the better. Bran nervously takes in the castle's extremely cursed vibes. Creepy noises, bad smells, and a weirwood bursting through the kitchen roof like some sinister cousin of the Kool-Aid man. Most importantly, though, there is no way through the wall here, just like Bran warned the raids. Jojen had a dream that there was a gate at the Night Fort, but here in reality, that gate has been packed solid with stone and rubble ever since the watch abandoned the castle. Bran wishes they'd followed Jon to Castle Black, but Jojen points out that their little RPG hero squad wouldn't have stood a chance against the Fens, who came very close to killing Summer back at Queen's Crown. Bran lost his wolf's Bluetooth signal after Summer was hit by a wildling arrow. Our boy hero prayed to the old gods to keep his wolf safe. Lo and behold, after the wildlings left, Summer showed back up and his wound has been steadily recovering ever since. The old gods must have been listening. Although Bran basically becomes the old gods in A Dance with Dragons, so I guess he was praying to himself? Asked and answered. Mira suggests they try another castle, but Bran says all the gates are sealed except for those at the tower still manned by the Night's Watch. Mira decides to climb up the wall to see what she can see. Bran is jealous, flashing back to his climbing days at Winterfell, although if Catelyn was nervous about her precious baby boy climbing towers, she'd have a heart attack watching him scale the wall. The Night Fort is so old that it doesn't even have stone or wooden steps like the other castles along the wall. The steps here are carved out of the ice. And I thought Sansa had it bad climbing down the giant's lance in A Feast for Crows. There aren't enough golden dragons in the world to convince me to climb 700 feet high on steps made of literal ice. Meanwhile, the rest of the Fellowship of the Bran explore the Night Fort. Summer kills a rat for lunch. Bran is disappointed it's not big enough to be the rat cook, but George describes it as being as big as a cat, which is definitely big enough to freak me out. Bran can hear more rats scurrying around the underground tunnels. Jojen, suicidal little weirdo that he is, wants to go poking around down there, but thankfully even Hodor knows better. Jojen can tell that the Night Fort is very, very old, but Bran knows the details thanks to Maester Lewin and Old Nan. The Night Fort is twice as old as Castle Black, the first castle on the wall and also the first one abandoned by the Watch. When Queen Alysanne, my cat, visited the Wall, she realized that the Night Fort was too big and expensive to maintain, so she offered to build the Watch a more appropriate castle down the road, Deep Lake, which has, of course, also been abandoned. There are ghosts here, Bran said. Hodor had heard all the stories before, but Jojen might not have. Old ghosts, from before the Old King, even before Aegon the Dragon, 79 deserters who went south to be outlaws. One was Lord Ricewell's youngest son, so when they reached the Barrowlands, they sought shelter at his castle. But Lord Ricewell took them captive and returned them to the Night Fort. The Lord Commander had holes hewn in the top of the wall and put the deserters in them, sealed them up alive in the ice. They have spears and horns and they all face north. The 79 Sentinels, they're called. They left their posts in life, so in death their watch goes on forever. Years later, when Lord Ricewell was old and dying, he had himself carried to the Night Fort so he could take the black and stand beside his son. He'd sent him back to the wall for honor's sake, but he loved him still, so he came to share his watch. Oh, I'm sure the son appreciated that. He'd thank his dad if his jaw weren't frozen shut, and also he's dead. Bran, Jojen, and Hodor keep exploring, finding one constant in each part of the castle. Everything's gone, from the, book, from the books to the bells to the birds. The buildings are crumbling and collapsing as nature retakes the night fort. No ghosts show up, though. Summer keeps hearing sounds that no one else can, but that is typical dog behavior, and Bran starts to calm down. Maybe there's nothing here to fear after all. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Uh, probably a lot by now, to be fair to Bran. Mira returns just before nightfall, having taken in the spectacular view from on top of the wall, but having found nothing that can help them get to the other side of it. Bran is just pleased to be right. See? We are doomed. I knew it. 
As the sun began to set, the shadows of the towers lengthened, and the wind blew harder, sending gusts of dry, dead leaves rattling through the yards. The gathering gloom put Bran in mind of another of Old Man's stories, the tale of Night's King. He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, she said, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her, and caught her, and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice, and when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king, and with strange sorceries he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, Night's King and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jorman of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. Some say he was a Bolton, old man would always end. Some say a Magnar out of Skagos. Some say Umber, Flint, or Nori. Some would have you think he was a Woodfoot from them who ruled Bear Island before the Ironmen came. He never was. He was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. She always pinched Bran on the nose then. He would never forget it. He was a Stark of Winterfell. And who can say? Mayhaps his name was Brandon. Mayhaps he slept in this very bed, in this very room. Mayhaps he snored on this very pillow. Mayhaps he pissed in this very chamber pot. You get the idea. Team Bran makes camp in the kitchens, despite the weirwood bursting through the roof. Bran actually takes comfort from the tree, thinking that the old gods, who are, again, just basically him, are with them. It's everything else about the kitchens that scares Bran. The gaping ovens, the rusted meat hooks, the talking jigsaw puppet in the corner, all of horror's greatest hits. Oh, and then there's the well. Did I mention the well? Everyone's dream kitchen has a huge portal to hell in the middle of it, right? The well is so deep that not even Mira can see the bottom. Hodor, fool of a took that he is, tosses some rubble down there, and Bran swears he can hear something moving in response. Maybe we shouldn't stay here, he said uneasily. By the well? asked Mira. We're in the night for it. Yes, said Bran. But um, shh. Don't get many zingers in these Bran chapters. You gotta appreciate them when they come along. Summer goes hunting, Hodor gathers firewood, and Mira prepares some fish for dinner. Bran is just glad they're not eating meat pie, so he doesn't have to think about the rat cook, who, of course, he thinks about anyway. The rat cook had cooked the son of the Andal king in a big pie, with onions, carrots, mushrooms, lots of pepper and salt, a rasher of bacon, and a dark red Dornish wine. Then he served him to his father, who praised the taste and had a second slice. Afterward, the gods transformed the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young. He had roamed the night fort ever since, devouring his children, but still his hunger was not sated. It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, old man said, nor for serving the Andal king his son in a pie. A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. I guess they never told this story at the twins. Andals, am I right? Jojen declares that it's time to sleep, perchance to dream of what they're supposed to do next. I don't know about you, I'm starting to doubt this guy's psychic GPS. Bran is too spooked to sleep, as every gust of wind and shaft of moonlight makes him think about the seemingly hundreds of ghosts who live here. Housing must get pretty cramped at the night fort. Is there, is there housing policy for ghosts? Are there NIMBY ghosts? There's gotta be a NIMBY dick crab joke somewhere in here. I'll workshop it. Bran has just managed to fall at least half asleep when he hears a noise. He tries to tell himself it's only the wind, but he quickly realizes that it's footsteps. It wasn't the sentinels, he knew. The sentinels never left the wall. But there might be other ghosts in the night fort, ones even more terrible. 
He remembered what old Nan had said of Mad Axe, how he took his boots off and prowled the castle halls barefoot in the dark, with never a sound to tell you where he was except for the drops of blood that fell from his axe and his elbows and the end of his wet red beard. Or maybe it wasn't Mad Axe at all. Maybe it was the thing that came in the night. The Prentice boys all saw it, old Nan said, but afterward when they told their lord commander, every description had been different. And three died within the year, and the fourth went mad. And a hundred years later, when the thing had come again, the Prentice boys were seen shambling along behind it, all in chains. That was only a story, though. He was just scaring himself. There was no thing that comes in the night, Mr. Lewin had said so. If there had ever been such a thing, it was gone from the world now. Like giants. Like giants and dragons. <laughs> giants and dragons. I have, I have some bad news about both of those for Bran. Bran realizes that the footsteps are coming from the well, because Hodor woke up the Balrog. Bran hallucinates the sounds of Blood and Chains, the sequel to Blood and Cheese, before hearing the very real sounds of breathing and whimpering. Bran considers warging into summer, but the wolf might be too far away to help. I told them not to come here, he thought miserably. I told them there were ghosts. I told them we should go to Castle Black. Well, he makes a point. No ghosts at Castle Black, not until John's wolf gets back. Bran thinks back to Sansa performing the sacred duty of all good older siblings, namely telling him he could hide from monsters under his blanket. Bran considers it, and then decides to actually do a thing instead, waking up Mira. She quickly and silently moves to the well, holding her spear and net at the ready. Bran doesn't want to let her fight alone, so he possesses Hodor, deliberately this time. It was not like sliding into summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot on your right foot. It fit all wrong, and the boot was scared too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat, and that was almost enough to make him flee. Instead, he squirmed and shoved, sat up, gathered his legs under him, his huge strong legs, and rose. I'm standing. He took a step. I'm walking. It was such a strange feeling that he almost fell. Oh good, that's all Bran needs. Falling in his own body wasn't enough, he has to start falling in other people's bodies. Bran, as Hodor, grabs Hodor's sword, but when a shriek comes out of the well, soon followed by a large black shape, Bran loses all courage and control, slipping back into his own body. He sees that Mira has the thing that came in the night trapped in her net, and is stabbing at it with her spear. The thing that came in the night starts screaming and begging for mercy, which seems like a strange thing for an eldritch abomination to do. Turns out the thing that came in the night is just good old Samuel Tarly, and the whale coming from the well is Gilly's baby crying his little head off. Bran sees that Sam is wearing the black clothes of the Night's Watch, and Sam identifies himself as a crow. Bran was suddenly uncertain. Are you the three-eyed crow? He can't be the three-eyed crow. I don't think so. The fat man rolled his eyes, but there were only two of them. Hey, Sam, I'd cut the sarcasm short if I were you. All the monsters he's faced in his journey, but nothing more threatening than Mira Reed with her net and spear. She threatens to toss him back down the well if she tears his net. As she gets him out of it, Jojen finally starts asking the big questions. Who are you? Where are you from? And how the hell did you just come out of the well? Gilly has a question of her own for Jojen. Are you the one? Oh, the Matrix is a system, Jojen. Uh, oops, wrong fairy tale. Gilly says that some guy named Cold Hands is looking for someone. Sam interjects that Cold Hands told him there would be people in the night for it, but Sam didn't know they would stab him. Mira points out that Sam is wearing literal chain mail, and she couldn't have heard him if she'd tried. But you know Sam, he bruises easily. Bran semi-politely wonders if this guy is really in the watch. Sam confirms that he is, but also that he has screwed up every task he's been given. Ah well, there's still time to do this one right. Speaking of which, Sam says there's a hidden gate, the Black Gate, down at the bottom of the well. 
he has to take them to it because it'll only open for the sworn brothers of the Watch, according to Cold Hands. And speaking of him, Gilly confirms that Cold Hands isn't a, an old family name for zombies, it's just what she and Sam called him. His hands were cold as ice, but he saved us from the dead men, him and his ravens, and he brought us here on his elk. His elk? said Bran, wonderstruck. His elk? said Mira, startled. His ravens? said Jojen. Hodor? said Hodor. The boy, said Melisandre. Wait, wrong chapter. Bran wants to know if Cold Hands has antlers like the green men in Old Man's story, but no, Cold Hands is a whole different kind of cryptid. Pale as a white, but still able to speak. Mira wants to know why Cold Hands didn't come up the well with Sam and Gilly. Sam says it's because of the wall. There are spells woven into it that prevent his passage. After Team Bran sits silently for a moment, clearly reassured by this not-at-all-ominous information, Jojen tells Sam that Bran is the special baby boy messiah that Cold Hands is looking for. Sam seems to notice Bran for the first time, and quickly realizes that he's Jon's brother. Bran begs Sam not to give away his secret, and Sam agrees, saying that Jon was his brother as well before they parted ways on the Fist of the First Men, and then the apocalypse happened. Bran reassures him that Jon is alive. Summer saw him. Oh right, Summer, my giant wolf, everyone say hello. Gilly is afraid of Summer at first, but Sam isn't because he knows Ghost. He holds out his hand, and Summer, good doggo that he is, gives Sam's fingers a smooch. That settles it for Bran. They're all going down the well. They leave Gilly behind, Sam promising to climb back up and take her somewhere warm, which is more than Bran can look forward to now. Sam takes a moment to prepare himself for the hardest part of his entire quest, taking the stairs, and then begins leading them down the well. It gets darker and colder as they go. Suddenly Sam stops, and Bran can see the gate. The Black Gate, Sam had called it, but it wasn't black at all. It was white weirwood, and there was a face on it. A glow came from the wood, like milk and moonlight, so faint it scarcely seemed to touch anything beyond the door itself, not even Sam standing right before it. The face was old and pale, wrinkled and shrunken. It looks dead. Its mouth was closed, and its eyes. Its cheeks were sunken, its brow withered, its chin sagging. If a man could live for a thousand years and never die but just grow older, his face might come to look like that. The door opened its eyes. They were white, too, and blind. Who are you? the door asked, and the well whispered. Hoo -hoo 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 -hoo. I am the sword in the darkness, Samuel Tarley said. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. Then pass, the door said. Its lips opened wide and wider and wider still, until nothing at all remained but a great gaping mouth and a ring of wrinkles. Sam stepped aside and waved Jojen through ahead of him. Summer followed, sniffing as he went, and then it was Bran's turn. Hodor ducked, but not low enough. The door's upper lip brushed softly against the top of Bran's head, and a drop of water fell on him and ran slowly down his nose. It was strangely warm and salty as a tear. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Brand 4. What did you think of this one, Manu? Okay, I only get to do this once this episode. <laughs> you best start believing in ghost stories, Brandon Stark. You're in one. Or seven. <laughs> it's kind of hard to keep track. There's a lot of ghosts in this chapter. Bran 4 is the turn in Bran's story, where he leaves behind the Game of Thrones and begins his Song of Ice and Fire. The time slippage Bran will experience in the Weirwood Net takes root here, as stories from long ago take center stage, while events far more recent, like the Red Wedding, are pushed to the periphery of Bran's mind. 
If Davos 5 was getting our toes wet with the emerging mystical element of the story, then Bran 4 is diving in headfirst. Even though Bran crossed paths with Jon in his last chapter, and with Sam in this chapter, his story is starting to feel so self-contained. Like it's happening beneath the surface of A Song of Ice and Fire before eventually returning to reclaim the rest of it. Every step is carrying Bran closer to where he needs to be, but along the way, the big picture of the plot recedes, like you're saying. George's focus turns inward. He's investigating the mechanisms of storytelling itself, and asking how the allegorical and even abstract imagery of fairy tales translates to our lived experience, especially through the filter of Bran's perspective as the kid from Princess Bride who doesn't want to hear about the kissing. We covered all that with the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter, in which Bran was told the origin story of Robert's Rebellion and also R plus L equals J. But he didn't understand the importance of what he heard, both because he's a little kid and because Mira told it as a kid's story, as it was told to her. George is up to something similar here, but the tone is different. I think when we talk about genre, what we're mostly really talking about is tone. In The Night of the Laughing Trade, the genre under inspection was chivalric romance, as with the ironic Beauty and the Beast imagery of Jamie and Brienne or Sansa and Sandor. So the tone of that chapter was melancholy and bittersweet to match. Ah, that's a sadder story, like Mara said. In this chapter, the genre foundation is horror, and as a lifelong horror fan, this is one of my favorite brand chapters because it's one of George's big reflexive statements on that genre. He's not just telling one ghost story. Like you said, he's telling like half a dozen ghost stories at the same time, making this chapter a repository for the genre. It's like a library shelf you're just skimming past. It's not just hollow pastiche, though. The stories are interwoven with Brand's predicament and his decisions, because George is interested in how stories prepare you for reality. Where do they help you? Where do they hurt you? Where do they prove true in ways that you never would have expected? This is the last Brand chapter in A Storm of Swords, but it feels less like a culmination of a character arc than a thesis statement about its own style. It's a story about stories. And it's all grounded in Brand's POV, this existential vertigo of feeling like he's falling into one of his own favorite stories. What did you think of the chapter, though? Yeah, I really liked it. I've been listening and rereading it a lot this week, and it's, it's a great chapter. And Bran is definitely one of those POVs that's grown on me the more I've reread the books. And a large part of that is because of how much we learn about the world of Aesop through his chapters. Part of that is because he loves stories, as we see in this chapter. And part of that is that he has to navigate the world in a different way from many other people based on his position as a disabled prince. As most people belonging to a marginalized group could tell you, you become extra aware of society's norms and structures when you don't fit within them. That's the kind of thing I find very interesting. There's a reason I studied sociology and gender studies at university, after all. In this chapter, the focus is on stories, but there's some reflections about disability, which we'll get into later. But yeah, this is a chapter about stories, especially the scary ones that old man used to tell to Bran. As Bran ponders in this chapter, sometimes the stories you're told might not literally be true, but that doesn't mean that they don't matter, that they don't have material effects that they don't impact the real world. Stories like the Rat Cook, the 79 Sentinels, and Brave Danny Flint tell us something about the values of society, and when told as bedtime stories, they help shape future generations, for better or worse. It is the night for it, and this is the end of the world. George lets us know immediately that this is not just another castle, not just another setting in his world of ice and fire. The Night Fort is such a compelling story in George's world that many of the tales within George's world, like that of the Rat Cook, the 79 Sentinels, the Knight's King, and so on, are set within it. 
a place where the past and present intersect, a gaping maw of horrors in more ways than one. It reminds me of Old Town as well, in that it's been briefly glimpsed in the first five published books, but we the readers are expecting some really gnarly shit to happen here, whether in The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring. The Night Fort itself is the oldest and largest of the castles along the wall, believed to be twice as old as Castle Black. Situated between the castle's ice mark and deep lake, the Night Fort's history extends way back to the era immediately following the Long Night and would remain manned until the good Queen Allison ordered it replaced with the castle at Deep Lake. Some notable architecture includes a bell tower, a brew house, and a dungeon capable of housing 500 prisoners. Oh yeah, and a giant weirwood tree that grows through the middle of the castle. And of course there is the Black Gate, a name, a name ripped right out of Tolkien for good measure. I feel like there's a lot of Tolkien references in this year, both the Black Gate and Hodor being, like Emmett said, a fool of a took. But luckily, despite all the horror vibes of the chapter and the references, nothing but actually bad happens at the Nightboard this time. What is Cold Hands with a zombie version of Strider leading the hobbits through the wild? <laughs> The Tolkien references are part of George's tribute to storytelling here, like the Nightford is the source of his own imagination. It's such an uncanny place for Brand because he's imagined every inch of it, he's pictured it, he's dreamed about it, and now he's literally here, wondering whether those spooky, scary skeleton things will happen to him. But yeah, like Lo said, it's really important that none of the ghosts actually show up in this chapter. No Mad Axe, no 79 Sentinels, no Rat Cooker thing that came in the night. The logistical plot-focused question in this chapter is, how will they get through the wall? But the more thematic psychological question is, are the ghosts real or are they all in Bran's head? George does a perfect job playing with the answer to that question. Bran sets us up to be scared, and it's definitely a scary place. But then as the chapter goes on, there's nothing more tangibly threatening than, like, rats and dead leaves. And when a monster does show up, it turns out to be Samwell Tarly, one of the least frightening people alive. So we think that the stories are all exaggerations. Ah, the Night Fort is just an empty castle. It's all in Bran's head. And then George hits us with the Black Gate, a magical artifact Old Nan stories never prepared Bran for, and a mystery the audience is not given enough information to figure out. The ultimate takeaway, I think, is that stories are neither total lies nor the unvarnished truth, but some third thing it's difficult to define, a function of perspective and the passage of time, one foot in reality and the other in dreams. Yeah, along those lines, uh, the Night's Fort is not only a setting for many of these great stories, but it also acts as a threshold, the end of the world, as Bran will call it. Bran taking his first steps out of the political world of the Game of Thrones and into the larger world, the mystical one of Ice and Fire. The foes Bran dealt with on the south side of the wall, Wildlings and Ironborn and Boltons will drop out of his story. Dead men, both friend and foe, children of the forest, and visions and prophecy will dominate from here on out. All of this couldn't be better embodied than the Black Gate itself, and that Sam has to let Bran pass through. The men who guard the hinge of the world are the ones that allow you to pass. Yeah, it's definitely a hint of the world in a way, but I want to lovingly call out Bran and Old Nan a bit for calling it the end of the world, something that Bran mentioned several times in this chapter. Especially combined with the way Old Nan describes the thing living beyond the wall as monstrous. Most of the time she just tries to scare Bran when she says this, but these kind of stories affect how people see the world. The people south of the wall see the free folk as monsters, but as the reader knows at this point, that's just not true. Immunized by the way they're treated and the enforced austerity. Because it is enforced austerity. 
the way I see it, the free folk lack resources because of the colonial control that the Seven Kingdoms and the Night's Watch enact. I've talked about this elsewhere, but it always rubs me the wrong way when people, both in the story and in the fandom, treat the north and especially the land beyond the wall as this uninhabitable wasteland where no one would want to live. As some people might know, I'm from Sweden, and my family specifically from the north of Sweden, north of the Arctic Circle, which, you know, that's pretty far north. Um, that land has definitely been described by other people as a wasteland. Yet, the indigenous Sami people have lived there since around 7,800 7, BCE. The Tornadalians, the ethnic group my family belongs to, migrated there around 200 years ago. And then, around 400 years ago, the Swedish crown decided to colonize the area uh, when they realized there were natural resources they could extract from the land. Yet, they didn't actually care about the land beyond how they could get minerals from the mountains and wood from the forests. You know, classic story. They cared even less about the people and their culture beyond how they could force them into labor. This pretty much still goes on today. Traditional Sami land is still being destroyed, while the languages and cultural practices of the Sami and Tornadalians are at risk of dying out, because the Swedish state really hasn't given a fuck about preserving anything uh, of that. Just as long as they have people working in the forests and in the mines, they're all good. A lot of the times, policies were specifically enacted to force people to assimilate into the dominant culture. Which is the reason I can speak Nyankeli, which is my dad's first language. So, characterizing land as wasteland where no one would want to live makes it easier to justify exploiting it and exploiting the people living there. If it's all a cold hell anyway, it doesn't matter that we make it actually, actually uninhabitable by building mines that poison the land and cutting down forests that are crucial for the ecosystem, right? So, I think a lot about this a lot when I read about the land beyond the wall. There are people living beyond the wall, and they have been living there for generations. It's mentioned in Jon's chapters that many free folk live so far north that they've never actually seen the wall, and many of them only speak the old tongue. We can assume that these people have a relationship to the land, and that many of them probably don't want to leave, yet are forced by the advance of the others. Implying that the land beyond the wall is all terrible diminishes their pain in having to leave it. To me, the issue isn't that you can't live beyond the wall. The issue is that the Seven Kingdoms and the Night's Watch enforce a border that the Free Folk aren't allowed to cross, which also means they can't trade with others. We don't see these types of borders elsewhere in the story. Even with the warring free cities, it's not like someone from Mir isn't allowed to move to Pentos. This is a special case. And it feels very similar to the co- kind of colonial control we see in the real life, where artificial border- borders split up people and lead to injustice. And I haven't even mentioned the children of the forest here. Uh, the modernization of them brings another dimension to all of this. So yeah, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the free folk or the children of the forest, for that matter, have a one-to-one parallel to the specific people in our world. But I think the process of colonial control is similar. George is exploring an interesting tension here. On one hand, Old Nan is right about the the demons and such kept at bay by the wall. Cold hands can't pass through, as we see in this chapter, and neither can the White Walkers. They they had to plant zombies back in Book 1 so the Night's Watch would bring them through the wall. But like you said so well, beyond the wall is is not just a blank spot on the map with, like, here there be monsters written near it. It's a place where people live and love and die like they do south of the wall. Men are men, as we keep saying in the Nauticast. 
And Davos's memories in the chapter where that quote comes from of smuggling beyond the wall and the harsh punishment for that dealt out by the Night's Watch ties right into what you're saying. The Wall is a political and economic statement, one that both disrupts wildling livelihoods and then prevents them from doing anything about it. In that context, Mirror is right what she says at the start of the chapter. The Night Fort is not the end of the world, it's just another ruined castle, it's not categorically different than Tumbledown Tower south of the Wall or the Fist of the First Men north of the Wall. These distinctions are arbitrary, which is exactly why they have to be enforced so strongly and brutally at every level. There is also the double meaning to the Night Fort being the end of the world. That could also mean the apocalypse, end of the world in time, not space. And in that sense, I think Bran is right, that the Night Fort has that, that end times vibe you would see in a post-apocalyptic movie. Like, something about this place is, is where we bring things down around us. Yeah, and I also like what you were saying, though, how that ties into, I mean, I wouldn't call Westeros an imperial project, mm. but a hallmark of an imperial project is pushing the horrors to the periphery of your empire, whether it's the Roman Empire and their border states that were always at war, or the way, you know, the United States of America talks about its southern border and with Mexico, you know, all the hoarders are pushed out of the imperial core into the fringes of the empire. And that's why you also kind of see this where everything south of the wall is treated as quote unquote civilization and everything beyond it is treated as not, which allows them to, you know, do whatever they want, whether it's resource extraction or genocide, uh, whatever, you know, direction, whatever horror you want to choose for the moment. Speaking of horrors, <laughs> the Red Wedding lives on in the periphery of Bran's mind in this chapter. We know he knows right away, but the chapter constantly veers away from explicitly stating so whenever it comes up. He doesn't quite say Rob Stark is dead, but Bran speaks of his older brother as if he needs to fill Rob's shoes now, that he must be as brave as Rob was, and things of that nature. Instead, Bran will spend this chapter previewing his Thousand Eyes in One era by spending as much time looking to the past as he does existing in the present. Of course, it's just stories and not visions like in Bran 3, A Dance with Dragons, but already we are moving to Bran existing asynchronously, where he will become unstuck in time. Bran lists the story set in the Night Fort early on in the chapter, almost acting like a table of contents as we will revisit these stories in more detail as we go on. The Rat Cook specifically becomes a runner of intrusive thoughts whenever something spooks Bran, which both organizes the chapter and sets up that particular tale which we'll get to in a bit. And as is Old Hat for this podcast, we know Bran lives in the dialectical space of Maester Lewin's rationalism and Old Nan's supernaturalism, but I think Benjen's comment says it all. We left the place behind 200 years ago, and he doesn't weigh in on the truth of any of the stories at all. That's the synthesis here, or to paraphrase the headmaster from another fantasy series, just because they're all in Bran's head doesn't mean they aren't real. I really love that Benjen line, because it sums up this whole game George is playing with whether or not the stories can be trusted. You can interpret what Benjen says either way. We left 200 years ago, okay, so none of the stories are being told by anyone who's ever been there. Even old Nan's not old enough to have been to the night for it. It's all secondhand and inflated over time. Don't take it too seriously. Or you could say, we left 200 years ago, and we haven't been back. Not just because the place is hard to keep up, but also because we were afraid of it. I gotta think a lot of the Watchmen believed the stories about the Night Fort, which is, which is way more relevant than whether or not they're true. The fear is the point, the way it leads Bran to freak out at non-freaky things like wind and bad smells, and later leads him to possess Hodor. Yeah, the stories do matter. They definitely have material consequences, even if they're just stories. I think a lot of the stories mentioned in this chapter function as a morality tale. 
instructing the children of Westeros in the norms of society. Maybe this doesn't go for all the stories, like it doesn't go for Maddox, as we mentioned before, but definitely when it comes to the 79 Sentinels, the Ratcook, and Brave Danny Flint. To me, Brave Danny Flint works as a cautionary tale of what could happen to you if you try to break out of the binary gender norms of society. I'll get into this a bit more in the foreshadowing portion of the episode, but I think it might signal trouble for some of the gender non-conforming characters in the story. Before I go on any longer, I just want to make a few things clear. The books call Danny Flint a girl who dressed up as a boy. I read that as Danny Flint being trans or gender non-conforming. Before anyone listening tries to come at me, saying it's not historically accurate or whatever to have a trans character in a medievalist fantasy story, First of all, trans people did exist in the Middle Ages. I can provide you with sources if you like. And second of all, this is fantasy. We have ice zombies and dragons. We can have trans people. But to the point of Danny Flynn specifically being trans or gender non-conforming, could they be a cis woman dressing as a man to join this male-only institution? Sure. But if we look at our own history, there are plenty of examples of people who were assigned female at birth who passed as men, for instance, when joining monk orders or the army. History often remembers them as women dressing as men, but many of these people lived as men for years. I don't think people realize how difficult and dangerous that is. To paraphrase something Leslie Feinberg writes in her book Transgender History, a woman dressing, might dress as a man to be more safe when walking down a street at night, but could she pass as a man for months or years while living on a ship or when sharing living quarters with brothers in the army? It requires commitment to attempt that. As we see in the story of Brave Danny Flint, it can be seriously dangerous to live as another gender than the one you were assigned at birth. We see this plenty in our own world too, of course. One real-life example I'm reminded of is the life and death of Brandon Tina. Friend of the podcast, Sam of the Rainbow Guard, once pointed out to me that it's quite possible that George was inspired by him when writing about Brave Danny Flint, since Brandon was killed in 1993 and the movie Boys Don't Cry, which is about his life, was released in 1999. For those not familiar with Brandon Tina, he was a trans man who was raped and later murdered in Falls City, Nebraska. Or rather, Brandon was one of three murder victims, the other two being his friend Lisa Lambert and her friend Philip Devine, who was a disabled black man. After the fact, the main focus has been on Brandon, but it's worth noting that one of the murderers had ties to white supremacist groups, so it seems very likely that this influenced the murders of the other victims. When it comes to Brandon, it seems like the men murdering him felt threatened by him and his masculinity. He was rather popular at birth. Those who would go on to kill him saw him as a fraud. This is often the case with violence against trans people. We're seen as frauds or deceivers because we live as another gender than what we were assigned at birth. People act as one's true gender will always be dependent on one's body, the body one had at birth. No matter what you do, you're actually a woman if you're born with a vagina. So, in the case of Brandon, these men sought to return him to his body and his so-called womanhood by raping him and then murdering him. In that way, they thought they took his masculinity away from him. This is, of course, very similar to to what happens to brave Danny Flint in Acewolf, and another reason why Danny reads his turns to me. This specific type of violence is extremely gender-based and specifically very transphobic. 
It's a punishment for daring to cross the gender boundaries, for daring to be gender non-conforming. Something I also want to mention is that after Brennan's death, his suffering and story were claimed by some different groups. Some understood his fate as that of a woman and or a queer woman, uh, and read that attack as misogyny and homophobia. Today, most people would probably agree that Brandon was trans and that this attack was fueled by transphobia. But that shows how in-depth someone's identity is easily misunderstood and thus misconstrued in historical records. We can see the same thing in the stories of many historical gender non-conforming people from further back in history. Often people who are assigned female at birth yet lived as men are nonetheless remembered as women. I think that's relevant to Danny Flynn's stories too. Danny is remembered as a girl, but we don't need to accept that as the truth. Yeah, that's really excellently said. Yeah. And if any TERFs or transphobes come for you, you have to go through me first and Emmett as well. And my sword and uh, my axe, are, absolutely. We are the watchers on the wall. Um, and I think it's also worth noting for people who are like, there are no trans people in medieval stories. Um, a lot of how we understand history and the disciplines around history were really forged during the long 19th century. So in the 1800s and in the 1800s, you have this weird kind of social mix up happening because the original stratifications of society or those pertinent to the feudal mode of production, like the clergy or nobility, those class structures were falling away. So instead, we saw hardening around gender and race during the 18th century. That's where race science specifically and things like phrenology really took off because they were applying these new scientific rational methods to create new class structures or new societal boundaries. Um, and those kind of centered around gender and race in the 1800s. So this isn't something that there weren't trans people in, you know, any time in history. It's more about the way we told history were, was informed by the way people were talk, thinking and talking about gender and race at the time that the basic histories that we are taught now, which are, you know, basically were set somewhere in the middle of the 1800s. So that's a very important thing to remember when talking about gender in these kind of medieval stories um, and that the, there's kind of implicit erasure in how the history is taught to us. Yeah, because the way we've understood uh, gender has differed through history as well and different cultures, uh, which I could go on uh, for a long time about, but I'm not going to do that right now. <laughs> That's a huge part of what this chapter is about, is how stories change over time and how history gets reflected through the audience and the ideology of the people telling it. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's very fitting. So, while the night fort is run down and overrun with a giant weirwood, the real issue for our characters is that simply there isn't a way through. And from the sound of it, Bran was very specifically annoying about this on the way to here. He is positive there is no way through. Jojen, who won't let Bran be more annoying than him, keeps falling back on his green dreams that there must be a way through. We also finally look back at John 5 from a Bran's point of view, or rather, Summer's. It may be hard to remember that we left Bran right before he warged Summer, seeing the rest of the night at Queen's Crown through John's eyes. And of course, so much has happened since then. We learned that though Summer had become Death, destroyer of wildlings, Summer was seriously injured to the point that Bran was worried his wolf might not make it. Every time Bran tried to re-enter Summer's body, the pain would just eject him out right away, which makes me just a little bit nervous about how that might play with the whole hold-the-door situation eventually. Luckily for Summer, Mira is well invested in her healing attributes and keeps the direwolf are, and helps the direwolf get back on all four. Yeah, every RPG gang needs a healer. 
Uh, and I mean, Mira <laughs> is filling a lot of roles in this gang in general. Also, speaking of Summer, all the mentions of him hearing stuff the Bran can't hear or snarling at things in the dark, that just reminds me of my cat staring into nothing. And just, <laughs> is it a ghost? Is it a bug? I don't know. concerned about it. Uh, all cats see with a thousand eyes and one. We can only Indeed. hope to have their level of perception. So Bran follows up by praying to the old gods. You know, he had prayed to protect Summer when Summer was ailing and to protect John and hope he gets back. And all of this always has me thinking, like Quentin says, is Bran just praying to himself? Yeah, also in the last chapter, Jon prays to the old gods during the battle. And I mean, it seems like the old gods slash Bran listen to that, so... Mira climbing to the top of the wall allows Bran some reflection time his lack of legs preventing him from doing the climb of his young life. Mira's ascent is via staircase cut in ice, which contrasts nicely with the previous John chapter and the wooden stair at Castle Black. It's these subtle details that allow the two different castles to tell a story on its own. The night fort was built in a time where they did things in an older, harsher way. And it gets harsher with time, actually, as Bran explains how the wall weeps and the icy tears refreeze into an even slicker and sheerer facade. The wall not only defends itself, but its defensive attributes may increase over time. As Bran says, ice is treacherous, which is a gambit Stannis Baratheon will take up at the Crofter's village in the Winds of Winter, if the Nightlamp theories are true. Also, I will say, as someone who lives where it gets real snowy, real snowy and icy in the winter, these have gotten icy as snow smelted and then frozen again, and that sucks. Also, I'm kind of afraid of heights, so no for me. I really do not get why the Night's Watch thought these steps were a good idea. It's it's one of those exaggerated elements like the height of the wall itself. It's there just to show you how metal the Night Fort is. Back in my day, we didn't need any fancy steps to climb 700 feet straight up. We had the ice itself, and we were lucky to have it. If you want to be generous, you could say this is all part of the storybook atmosphere. The Night Fort belongs to ghosts. It was built in the days of fairies and demons, so it feels like it wasn't quite made for humans. Again, one foot in realism, one foot in dream logic. George pivots throughout this chapter between a precise focus on physical details and a more stylized approach to the ghost stories themselves, and certain aspects of the castle. As with the healing earlier, the climb also reminds us just how good Mira is at this, one of the most consistently competent people in A Song of Ice and Fire, and her survival skills are always how the Fellowship makes good on Jojen's cryptic little dream journal. While Mira looks up top, the rest of the group hopes to find something on the ground, or as Bran says, maybe something will find us. I love this constant fear from Bran because it builds us up not only to the Ratcook story, but also the arrival of Sam. It heightens the tension in a chapter that could lazily be summarized as Bran and company look around, find nothing, run into a friend, and continue the journey. To make this one of the more tense chapters in the book reminds me of Davos 4 and how George made a chapter set entirely in two rooms feel like a grand adventure on its own. The first of the major stories we get is that of the 79 Sentinels, a lot of which makes me think of Jon Snow. The ice cells that Lord Risewell's son and his 78 compatriots were sealed in could have been the inspiration for the actual ice cells we will see Jon put in later in this book. The Knight's Fort does have a giant dungeon, remember, but maybe the Watch realized that they could use their building materials elsewhere and just use the wall itself as a prison. The first builder who realized that should get a gold star. But not for me, because I am a prison abolitionist, especially cages at the border. 
But the part that really has me thinking about Jon Snow is the fact that even though Lord Risewell captured and returned his own son, his father eventually took the Black to join him. To paraphrase Elsie Mormont, honor made him send them back, and honor made him join them. It also invokes the Jon Snow Ned Stark AU we all wanted before Arya 5 of Game of Thrones happened, a narrative in which Ned is allowed to take the Black and join Jon up at the wall. Alas. Yeah, sad Stark hours as usual. (laughs) On the other hand, not gonna lie, thinking of the Sentinels serving even in death immediately made me want to make a joke about Marx's concept of dead labor, even if I know it's not that literal. Still, I feel... (laughs) I feel like there is something there about being forced to serve even in death. Some Marxist commentary to be made. Of course, it all is also reminiscent of the whites. Being able to use the dead for labor sure would help maximize profits. I can't believe uh, our capitalist overlords haven't thought about this yet. <laughs> As one of our favorite next watch brothers, Loris Ed says, Die win now. He says we need to learn to ride dead horses like the others do. He claims it would save, fe- save on feed. How much could a dead horse eat? Can't say I've the notion. Once they figure out a way to work a dead horse, we'll be next. Likely I'll be the first too. Ed, they'll say, dying's no ex- excuse for laying down no more, so get up and take this spears you got first watch tonight. Well, I shouldn't be so gloomy. Might be I'll die before they work it out. Typical Ed, but he has a point. In our current times, I'm reminded of a- using AI to use the visage of dead actors in movies, which is why we need to support actor strike. Or the story that went viral a few years back about how a dead professor was teaching an online art history course. Valar Magulis, yet Valar Harris. Also, on a less depressing note, the story of the 79 Sentinels reminds me of a creature from Swedish folklore called Busen. Busan has some similarities to other folkloric creatures like Will o' the Wisp, because if you run across him, you'll become lost and can't find your way back. The cure for this is for some reason to turn your shirt inside out. According to lore, Busan was a man who in life had committed some sort of crime and was therefore condemned to walk the land even after death. In some versions, he had specifically tried to take someone else's land through trickery by moving the markers that mark the borders between the land areas. As a punishment, he can't find peace after death and has to walk the land, moving back the markers that were placed incorrectly. If a human being walks after him and places the markers correctly, he'll get his peace. There is something there about being punished even in death and being forced to continue to repent. I like that Bran tells this story even though Hodor has heard it before, and obviously Bran has heard it before, because, as he thinks, Jojen might not have. And that ties back into the Night of the Laughing Tree chapter, when Jojen kept asking if Bran had heard this story. Bran hadn't, because Ned doesn't tell stories about the Roberts Rebellion era. It's too painful, and he doesn't want anyone connecting the dots regarding Jon. And Jojen might not have heard the Nightfort stories either, because while the Neck is part of the North, it's also isolated and very far away from the Wall. When Old Nan tells these stories to Bran, she's telling him about the place they live and the kind of people who have lived there. Night's King might have been a Stark. The Rat Cook got revenge for the first men on the Andals. Those 79 Sentinels didn't just go to some unnamed castle, they specifically go to Lord Ricewell's castle, which is in the North. None of that is as relevant to the Reeds, so these stories might not get told at Greywater Watch. For a baby Stark, it's all about establishing a tension between duty and love, protecting lands from the outlaws, and a connection there, I think, to, to settling the wildlings attention John thinks about in his chapters. 
And you get the sense, this horrible sense where the story ends of this, this fate worse than death of being sealed up in the wall and having to maintain this eternal vigilance, almost becoming the others in the way these, these immortalized soldiers are becoming the others in the name of holding the line against them. And the end where Lord Ricewell has himself carried to the wall is haunting because it suggests at some level he always regretted sending everyone back. We ask those in the watch to sacrifice their lives and their families, but that doesn't just erase those bonds and everything we build on top of them. I want to really quickly flag a stylistic thing here. Where Bran is naming the buildings he explores, George uses parentheses to communicate those buildings' current state. I don't really have a real point about this, but George doesn't use parentheses often, so I at least like to pay attention when he does. And of course, it's what's between the parentheses about the library that piques my interest. The books are all gone. It's very likely they were just moved to Deep Lake when the Watch abandoned the Night Fort, but my mind returns to the fact that the Night's King's memory was completely removed from history and how they actually did that. All lines of communication have been cut. No books, no birds, not even the bells that you would use to signal the time of day or some big event. The castle has been muted like Euron's crew. There are stories about the Night Fort, but there are no stories in the Night Fort. And to the world brain called it, it feels like the, the end of story, the end of history. Who is the Francis Fukuyama of <laughs> Westeros? That is an interesting question. Uh, I'm going to go with Pycelle off the top. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> and well, speaking of the Night's King, not to be mistaken with HBO's Night King, well, that's next up in Storytime with Bran. This story is at the heart of a lot of theories and predictions for A Dream of Winter, and that's due to how many components of the Night's King story can be traced to other parts of our narrative. Even Old Nan's intro about how all men must have fear, that the Night's King lack of it is what led him to doom, ties nicely into Ned's adage about how you can only be brave when you are scared. One wonders if Ned's little catchphrase originated from Old Nan's lessons. Yeah, and I also feel like this thing about total fearlessness being bad is something that comes up in quite a few stories. One that comes to mind for me is a plotline from the Mortal Instruments series by Cassandra Clare, which is a kind of YA fantasy book series. There's a character there who uses what you might call experimental magic to temporarily become completely fearless, which absolutely backfires because it leads to him doing extremely reckless things in battle. We need fear to do proper risk assessment. Exactly. It's in the same way that pain is helpful because it lets you know your hand is on the stove. And if you didn't feel the pain, <laughs> you wouldn't know your hand is on the stove. Something that comes up over and over in the Song of Ice and Fire is that the, the tough guy warrior mentality common to many folks in Westeros tends to cause more problems than it solves. People like Randall Tarley might approve of fearlessness, believing that people like Sam, who are honestly and frequently afraid, are just weaklings. They're just cowards. But Sam was the one who killed a White Walker. And he was inspired to work through his fear by the memory of John's kindness to him, rather than his father's hatred. Not only is Randall's worldview cruel, it's pointlessly cruel. It doesn't even achieve the goals that would supposedly make the cruelty worthwhile. You might think that Night's King would be the perfect choice to fight the others because he's not afraid of them. But this story shows us the opposite is true. Night's King was so unafraid of the others that he didn't take them seriously enough. He wound up working for them. A little fear would have been healthy there. And then again, if you take fear too far, you wind up with Bowen Marsh, who's so afraid of the wildlings that he can't see their common humanity. It's very difficult to strike the balance. It's not about always being fearless or always being afraid. It's about recognizing what's appropriate in a given situation, and always being fully conscious of what your fear is leading you to do. That's the point, I think, of Old Nan's story. Avoid the idea that being masculine, being a leader, etc. is about defeating your own fear. 
Instead, embrace your fear. Don't let it control you, let it inspire your courage. Otherwise, you'll end up just like Night's King. Old Nan tells Bran that Night's King was a Stark. I think, you know, just it makes a stup- makes for a spooky ending to the story. Oh, we lived in this room. Maybe he's still here. Hide beneath the covers. But like any good kid's story, it has layers that are only visible to adults. The point of Night's King potentially being a Stark is that anyone could go down that dark road. It reminds me of what they say in Lord of the Rings about how even Sauron was not born evil. That's a process that Night's King started out as someone who could live in the same world as Bran. The Night's King's seduction at the hands of an other... Uh probably, that is, is also the source of many a theory. I've read stuff about how Cersei somehow will play this role on the more tinfoil end of things. But there is a legitimate parallel with the king bound for this fort in the Winds of Winter. Stannis Baratheon may have given his soul to a walking corpse named Melisandre. If you replace the woman's blue eyes with red and her skin being icy cold with it being warm, there's a lot of Melisandre vibes there. That is not to say that Melisandre is the Great Other, or that Stannis will arise as some Nazgul king in the endgame, though that would be incredibly metal, (laughs) but that there's definitely some connective tissue between the two. Yeah, for sure. But as a contrast to the corpse queen, we get Mel's POV. We see that she truly believes that she's doing the right thing, she's fighting for goodness in her mind, and she's fighting for light. We get all her trauma and pain, and we see how that motivates her. And that makes her more than this stereotypically evil sorceress that seduces good men to darkness, which is kind of the trope that the corpse queen plays into. Because, you know, it always has to be a woman that we can blame for bad actions. And maybe if we got the corpse queen's POV, it would be similar. Forged by the war between humans and fairies trying to save her dying world. It's definitely important that Stannis and Melisandre are basically the photo negative of the very monsters they say they oppose. Fire instead of ice, red and black instead of blue and white, like Manu said. Knights, King, and Queen supposedly sacrificed humans to the others, maybe children like Craster did. Melisandre wants to sacrifice children to stop the others, which makes a difference unless you're the kid in question. So Azor Ahai, the hero figure who saves the world, could wind up mirroring Knights King, the villain figure who dooms it. Asha describes Stannis as someone who will never turn back, which certainly sounds fearless in the same way that Knights King is described. Varys says about Stannis that there's no creature half so terrifying as a truly just man, suggesting that Stannis' road to hell is paved with good intentions, that his justifiable big-picture goals give him permission, in his mind, to do things he would find unthinkable in another context. And in that process, like Night's King, he might go so far as to write himself out of the story, that line from the show we keep coming back to, I will not be a footnote in someone else's history book. Stannis might not just be forgotten, but stricken from the record. And that, again, like the, the Ricewell Sentinels, that's a, that's a fate worse than death to be erased from the stories. The story also mentions how the Stark in Winterfell and the King Beyond the Wall had to join forces to bring down this existential threat. In a way, John and Mance collaborating in A Dance with Dragons runs tangent to this. And finally, that the Night King himself was a brother to the Stark of Winterfell makes me think of a potential showdown between Jon Snow and Daenerys in the endgame as well. Personally, I've always been a fan of the theory that Cold Hands is the Night's King, but not for any real purpose towards the saga's finish. The idea that the Night's King was to forever serve the old gods as a nameless walking corpse in a Sisyphean manner just kind of clicks in my brain and gives credence to the idea that the children of the forest created the others and that both are using the same types of magic, presuming that Cold Hands is reanimated in a way similar to the other whites. 
and the added irony that the chapter in which the Night's King story is revealed is one that also features a conversation about cold hands. It's the same guy. They're the same picture. Just to reiterate, I don't think this will actually matter. Hell, I'm not sure who Cold Hands is will matter at all, but it's a nice idea that I think gels with how I conceive of the story thus far. Yeah, it's interesting. I have another favorite tinfoil theory about Cold Hands uh, that I'm going to bring out later in the theory section, but it doesn't actually matter, but it's fun to think about. The other part I am personally curious about is the Night's King name being stricken from the records. What that means. What happened to the books and ledgers he wrote in if they existed? This predates the Iron Throne, but were the Watch sending ravens to Old Town about newly elected Lord Commanders? Would his name have been documented there? Would the Stark of Winterfell e-raven the Citadel after the Night's King's destruction to tell them to do some light document destruction Enron style? Aimless questions I don't think we'll ever learn about, but they toy with my mind, which makes the Night's King story one of my favorite historical backstories in A Song of Ice and Fire. Just a lot of ways to rotate this cube in my mind, so to speak. So the group makes camp in the kitchens, the giant weirwood coming up through the room, originating down in the Black Gate, presumably, makes for a vivid contrast to the rest of the kitchen, which feels straight out of a horror movie or a Dark Souls game. Meat hooks, old bloodstains, and scratches and scars everywhere, and worst of all, a well to the very depths of hell. Finally, the rat cook story comes after many a tease, and while the 79 Sentinels and the Night's King have felt plausible in their own ways, the story of the rat cook feels ripped from Greek mythology, as often those myths contain an anthropomorphic element like the cook being turned into a giant white rat. Whereas the Night's King story is able to spool into many different theories and threads, the rat cook tale seems to be more focused in tension, emphasizing that the violation of guest right represents some cosmic disturbance in George's world, and an event like the Red Wedding, and perhaps even the purple one coming up, will not go without karmic retribution. And of course, there is the matter of Wyman Manderley, who we will talk about later on in this episode. And it's of course very fitting that we get this story at the tail end of the Red Wedding adjacent chapters. It's a hint that such atrocities won't stand. I think the Rat Cook story really exemplifies how George is, is toying with audience sympathies here. You get all these little fables with morals that old Nan put in there, and they all, they all trick you in some way. The 79 Sentinel story at first is about the importance of duty, enforcing oaths, protecting the, la protecting the land from outlaws even when they're your own blood. But then it ends on love haunting Lord Weiswell until his death. Night's King is fearless, but as we were saying, that turns out to be his undoing. And the Rathcook story is the most well-constructed one, I think, because it starts with this, this murder described in grisly detail, like all the food the cook put in in the pie along with the, the guy. And then the story tells us, no, actually that, that, the murder itself, that was no big deal because the gods are okay with revenge killing. The problem was that the victim was a guest at the time. And even a war that sanctions vengeance killings is not enough to overcome the sacred nature of guest right. That's the last vestige of a society that's not just as strong devouring the weak. So that's a story being told to pass on a certain set of values to Bran. It, it frightens you with the murder, but then tells you no. See, no matter what someone does, if they're at your dinner table, they're family. That's the important takeaway. All these legends and myths have thus primed the reader for the final act of this chapter, letting the wonder and terror of the night fort's past bleed in like faint moonlight when Bran hears the noise. 
George casually weaves in yet another ghost story, this one about the shoeless Joe Axman and the Black Sox scandal of 1917, (laughs) or something close enough not to matter. You can tell George is really invested in making the Night Fort not a place of horror, but a place of horrors. Sadly, one of the horrors is visited upon Hodor, as Bran's skin changes into the gentle giant, and Bran's childish description belies a truly awful moment of what's happening to Hodor. You can see Bran's justification here, I can't let Mira fight alone, which makes you wonder what justifications Bran may make later when the stakes are much, much higher. And it's something we should think about. Bran didn't give Hodor a choice or a chance. No attempt was made to quietly wake Hodor or Jojen, as it comes with high risk of noise. And all that for Bran just to be scared all the way back into his own body. Like in Bran 3, the Hodoring moment comes and goes, as we're quick to get into the Sam and Gilly of it all. But if you interrogate the moment, it's a moral quicksand. Oh, for sure. And reading how it's described is deeply uncomfortable. Emmett read it in the synopsis, but I'm gonna just read it with part of it again. It was not like sliding into summer. That was so easy now that Bran hardly thought about it. This was harder, like trying to pull a left boot on your right foot. It fit all wrong, and the boot was scared too. The boot didn't know what was happening. The boot was pushing the foot away. He tasted vomit in the back of Hodor's throat, and that was almost enough to make him flee. Other people, for instance Gulltrick and Cannon, have pointed out that Bran's skin changing of Hodor often reads as similar to sexual assault. After all, Bran is violating Hodor and his bodily integrity. I recently wrote an essay about Hodor from a disability perspective, and where I wrote about this a bit. And in the essay, I was partly inspired by some of the work I do IRL, where I've, for the past year, uh, worked with making sexuality education more accessible for people with intellectual disabilities. And I read Hodor as someone with an intellectual disability. Which makes all this hit all the harder, because real-life statistics shows us that people with disabilities, and especially people with intellectual disabilities, are more at risk of sexual violence than able-bodied people. For instance, in a recent Swedish study I read, 50% of disabled people had experienced sexual harassment, compared to 26% of the general population. At the same time, people with intellectual disabilities are often fatalized and their ability to make their own decision about their body and sexuality is dismissed. In general, other people making decisions about them is normalized because they're often not believed to be capable to make decisions for themselves. It's the great cruel irony of this chapter that after all the build up all these ghost stories, the only monster here is Bran. How easy would it be to turn this into one of old Nan's stories, a little fable about an exiled disabled prince who uses his one power to feel strong again, in the process psychically assaulting someone with their own disability? Bran only gets his legs back by taking Hodor's whole body away from him. As with Stannis and Night's King, as with the Sentinels locked up in the ice, it's another echo of the Others seen in the people who are here to fight the Others, Bran possessing Hodor like the White Walkers possess dead people. No one must ever know, as Bran thinks about it in A Dance with Dragons, and that only works because Hodor can't communicate to the reeds what's happening. Mira would definitely disapprove, but who knows if Jojen would? He might think it's just part of his training. Hodor is collateral damage like Jojen himself. Like I've said before, it's an extension and exaggeration of Bran's social authority over Hodor, who is not only a disabled man, but a disabled peasant, someone who can be ordered around. Of course, you know, calling Bran a monster is, is hyperbolic on purpose. Bran is obviously still a lot, you know, younger and nicer than someone like Euron, who makes a moment like this his whole worldview. 
And despite Brand's shame, I think he is young enough still that he doesn't entirely understand the implications of what he's doing. That it registers more to him as, as breaking the rules, like climbing, rather than being horrifically evil. Bran's decision to possess Hodor can't be separated from his childishness. What happens here is that Bran is so keyed up, so frightened from all the stories that he assumes the sound must be a monster. And so he possesses Hodor to fight back, which it turns out he doesn't have to do because it's Sam. The stories were so real to them that he made them real. He added another ghastly occurrence to the Night Fort Rogues Gallery. And to be fair, we're so quick to move past this Hodoring moment because it is Sam. We love Sam. Sam and Gilly both. And it's genuinely nice to see them. Tale after tale of horror builds up to the two nicest people in the world emerging from its darkest hole. I just love that for us. It's a genuinely fun interaction that follows. Sam is just being Sam all over the place as Gilly and Bran and the Reed slowly piece together what cosmic turn of events has them all crossing paths here. And the events are indeed cosmic, or let's say mystical, as Sam explains both the black gate that granted them entrance and the mysterious hammer horror mummy guy that led them there. The story inspires a lot of skepticism, which the author punches up with some great banter. A series of incredulous questions like, His elk? His elk? His ravens? Hodor? (laughs) Sam directing all this at Jojen is also a funny bit too. Like, yeah, clearly that guy is the one with all the answers and is into the mystical mumbo-jumbo I've fallen into here in the North. And he later also confuses Mira for Summer. Samuel's just coming in like a wrecking ball of situational comedy into the tightly constructed haunted mansion that is the Night Fort. Yeah, and reread it's amazing how many tone shifts George works into a few pages here. From suspense to comedy and then back to horror. It's such a great reveal because it resolves a lingering threat. What happened to Sam and Gilly? How are they going to get to safety? So all the tension gives way to relief in a way that immediately makes sense. It doesn't feel contrived, despite all the forces of fate and destiny at work. For Sam, it's just the last straw on top of all the other stress he's been dealing with in this book. He literally collapses with a poke and is immediately more dangerous to the net than it is to him. (laughs) For him, in that moment, Mira was the monster. And even after they calm down, Summer frightens Gilly for a second. So the framework of who is actually threatening who gets completely flipped. It makes me think about what Jojen says about Bran in Dance when they're in the cave and Bran is going through his green seer training. He says, he is not the one who needs to be afraid. George holds back quite a bit on cold hands, as he only pops up in the very last of Sam's last chapter, and we won't see him, uh, we won't see him at all until Bran and co. are with him in A Dance with Dragons. So a lot is left to our imagination. Yet another undead Odin character to match Beric Dondarrion, acting as Sharon to the three-eyed crow forever confined to the north of the wall. There's also a jolt of heart in when Sam realizes who exactly he's helping. It's John's brother. Sam takes this news in stride, and even gets reassured that John survived and is probably back at Castle Black already. Everyone wins. Yay! And while very similar, I do want to shout out this moment in the show, which I feel is very nicely done, with a little stronger iteration of Samuel Tarley and John Bradley, and also back when the show knew what the hell to do with Isaac Hempstead Wright's Brandon Stark. The Sam of the show cries a little less, pees himself a little less, and is generally a little more aggressive and put together at this point. Sam does a lot of the heavy lifting in the scene himself, as he susses out who Bran is purely with context clues, and the way both Bradley and Christian Nairn's face lights up when Sam says, and of course I know about Hodor, like Hodor's a proper fucking legend, I just really love that. A really heartwarming moment coming in the S3 finale Misa in the wake of the Red Wedding. 
This crew begins their descent into the well. You could almost forgive George if he had almost snuck in another sobbing Sam takes another step here. (laughs) Not out of fear, but the pure fatigue of having to navigate the narrow staircase yet again. I like the part where Bran looks up to the top of the well and the light looks like a half moon now. It makes me think of Bran's final chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where time is told by the cycles of the moon while Bran looks up from his wooded hole, much like right here. And so then they arrive at the Black Gate, but I think we're going to save most of our conversation about the gate itself uh, for the end of the episode. We're going to move on now to foreshadowing and groundwork. So when Stannis arrives at the wall and is talking to the Night's Watch officers in Sam's last chapter in the book, he talks to Sam about his experience in the Night Fort and says he intends to set up shop there. He intends to make that his seat while he's on the wall. Doesn't end up doing that uh, as of a dance with dragons, in part just because George did not do the five-year gap. Maybe the intention was for Stannis to already be in place at the Night Fort once that was done. Instead, he hangs out at Castle Black and then um, marches on Winterfell. But maybe that's going to pay off. Maybe Stannis and company will eventually end up here. It might even be possible at the climax of the story, the sacrifice of Shireen ends up happening at the Night Fort. Yeah, as a rereader, I kind of view this chapter as equal parts brand story, but also perhaps providing some heavy lifting for setting up this location when Stannis does come, or if he does come. I am open to the idea that the Shireen burning could happen at Winterfell as well, but I think it's it's the sort of macabre act I would think best fits in here at the Night Ford. And just as a stark stan, um, I'd hate to spend time with our Winterfell characters in A Dream of Spring while thinking, oh... Poor Shireen burned just like right over there. Um, I just think it kind of puts a big downer on it. Maybe that's what George means by bittersweet, but I'm thinking he means something else. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think the burning of Shireen could happen at the night fort. I've thought for a long time that the sacrifice of Shireen might parallel the hold the door moment where another innocent character is sacrificed for a king slash future king and perhaps still happen around the same time. Both Hodor and Shireen also fit the trope that you often see with disabled characters that might be called poor little things, brave little souls. In that trope, a disabled character mostly serves as a function in other characters' story. The reader is supposed to judge other characters' moral goodness based on how they treat a disabled character. We definitely see this a lot with Hodor, for instance, when we're introduced to Little and Big Walder as they're harassing him. So I think it would make sense that the sacrifice of Shireen and Hodor would work that way too, even if I don't necessarily like it. It would be Stannis's low point, but maybe something that makes Bran finally properly realize that what he's been doing to Hodor is wrong, like we talked about in this episode. It's the thing that makes him realize that he has to be better. Because he's still a kid after all, and he's capable of learning and growing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different part of Stannis' story. It'd be much more, that, much more the end. And I, I like that idea a lot of Stannis sacrificing Shireen here in part because the, the setup is there for, like I said, for, for Stannis to take over here, but also because it, it fits, yeah, it fits the, the Night Fort so well. And it's a great payoff to this chapter in which, uh, as Lo said earlier, that none of the actual ghosts make an appearance. Nothing more than unsettling actually happens in this chapter. But maybe that's just a delay of the payoff of something legitimately nightmarish to happen here, uh, like Stannis and Shireen, to join the, the kind of the horrible stories told about this place. Speaking of those stories, as we mentioned earlier, the Rat, Cup le- the rat Cook legend, that's going to come up again in A Dance with Dragons with uh, Wyman Manderley and his Frey Pies. He even, he even makes it explicit when at, at the end of that, that wedding feast for Ramsay and Jane. He asks, he asks Mance, and this guy says Abel, for a song about the Rat Cook, just in case we didn't get it. 
Yeah. Uh, by the time we get to that chapter, I promise to either read Titus Andronicus or a very good summary <laughs> of Titus Andronicus. You'll be throwing out the references left and right. You know what you should do is, have you ever watched the uh, the Julie Taymor movie adaptation of Titus? No, is that the Anthony Hopkins That's one? That's the Anthony Hopkins one, yeah. That's hard to find now for whatever reason. Someone should do a great like remastering of that, but that movie is insane. So I highly recommend Sounds that perfect. to everybody. Yeah, that sounds like something I should watch too. I think you'd like it actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but just like speaking of the rat cook, uh, I love that we get this story at this point in uh, in the story because it's hint it hints at how the phrase slash Bolton slash Lannisters, what they've done, it just won't stand. It doesn't just foreshadow the Frey Pies themselves; it also just foreshadows the whole Northern Resistance in general. There will be consequences to all of this. Tywin and his ilk might think it's good to be feared as a ruler, but to be hated is definitely not good, and they'll see the consequences of that. Absolutely. That's what everyone leaves out of Machiavelli, is he, he stressed the importance of being feared even more than loved, but he said, but hated is worse than either one of those. People, people always leave that part out. Exactly. I also wanted to take a moment to think about Brave Danny Flint and foreshadowing. So we get the first part of the Brave Danny Flint story in this chapter, and then the story comes up again in Jon's A Dance with Dragons chapter when Jon talks to Tormund about why it might not be a good idea to have young free folk girls housed with Night's Watchmen. And then speaking of Wyman Wan Manderley, he also calls for a song about Brave Danny Flint at Ramsey and Fake Arya's wedding, which some fans have read as a hint that he knows that Arya is Jane. There's some similarities between Danny and Jane, with Danny living as another gender than they were assigned at birth, while Jane is living as an other name, under an other name and identity completely. And they're both horrifically abused. But as I mentioned before, I think the story about Brave Danny Flint might also give us an insight into the dangers of being gender non-conforming in Westeros. And therefore I'm worried that it might foreshadow something for the gender non-conforming characters in the story. Brienne is a clear example, of course. They've already faced plenty of violence, physical and otherwise, because of their gender. But I'm also worried about Alaris, who is currently living as another gender than the one they were assigned at birth, if you take the prevailing theory about their background for granted. In our real world, trans and gender non-conforming people of color are at, more, are at more of a risk of violence than white folk. And we've already seen Leo be a racist asshole to Alaris, so how would he act if he found out about what gender Alaris was assigned at birth? Or what about Euron, who'll show up in Old Town soon enough? He might not actually care about the gender stuff the way bigots do, but he do he does love to torture people in deeply personal and painful ways. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the the young acolytes of the Citadel as kind of a parallel to the Night's Watch in many ways. Satin, who we were talking about in our most recent Aesop episode, it comes from Old Town, so it kind of makes that connection. There's the obvious, the kind of the brotherhood angle of it, where you're, you're all getting together for a common purpose. Uh, and uh, yeah, obviously Sam has, has traveled from one to the other. And uh, I always just thought it was funny that Sam is trying to get Gilly and himself like away from the White Walkers, away from the cold, and then walks right into Euron's path. So it's just all going to go horribly wrong again. But I think I think that's a great parallel there between the potential dangers at the Watch in this regard and in Old Town. That in both cases you have these these masculine orders where the the punishment for uh, being non-conforming with your gender would be pretty severe. I also had another question, uh, and that is: Will Gilly see more castles? 
because in the chapter, Gilly mentions that Craster had told her about castles being a thing, but she hadn't thought they'd be this large. And he calls, kind of sadly calls back to Egret and John having discussions about castles throughout the chapters, which of course got a tragic end last chapter with her being glad that she at least got to see one proper castle. In the chapter, Bran thinks that if Gilly thinks the kitchen of the night fort is impressive, what would she think of Winterfell? Do we think this is setting something up? Maybe if she goes to Horn Hill, like in, in the show, Gilly might say, like, actually, you know, yeah. this is a dump. Never mind. <laughs> Not impressed. <laughs> I have no prediction, but I do have a desire. I hope after the climax or the resolution of the story that Gilly and Sam kind of do the Legolas and Gimli thing after they destroy the ring and go oh, touring yeah. the wonders of the world. But it's just taking Gilly to see all the castles of Westeros. In fact, by the end of the story, I think Gilly will see the most castles out of any one character in the story. That is my prediction. I love it. She'll go to Harrenhal, ultimate fixer-upper. <laughs> It'll be perfect. <laughs> She'll decorate each one. All right. So moving on into theory and discussion. Mentioned it earlier. We're going to talk about what the hell the deal is with the Black Gate. This is one of the more interesting and mysterious aspects of George's magical universe, something that comes out of nowhere in this chapter and isn't really addressed again. People have come up with many theories, many connections, but it's not something that George has given us any more details about. So when, it, when you look at the Black Gate, what do you think about it? What do you think, what, what's important about it? Yeah, honestly, it's like an assault of like a million different ideas and references in my mind. Absolutely. Um, because uh, in our real world, there are structures all over from India to Laos to Italy to the Americas that have mouths depicting depicting openings to temples or caverns or caves or you know there are also other body parts like those who attended kendall roy's 40th birthday party will know um and then also the black gate um is a term like we said is ripped right out of tolkien and it's you know when you know aragorn and everyone goes to the black gate they meet the mouth of sauron so we have a giant gaping mouth here again um so you can see a lot of the same kind of imagery remixed into something brand new which george loves to do with tolkien stuff um and then it's evocative of just other stuff from pop culture, whether it's Aladdin and the cave with the lamb or the great Deku tree from Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Um, it invokes both Monstro from Pinocchio, the whale that eats Jonah. Just anytime one of your main characters, especially a little boy, is going through a giant mouth, um, I think you can see a lot of parallels running through that and what George is setting up here. Yeah, my, my kind of joke answer is that it always reminds me of the face of Bo from Doctor Who. Especially with the la line, if a man could live for a thousand years and never die, but just grow older, his face might come to look like that. Which is basically what the face of Bo looks like. Anyone who's seen Doctor Who can attest to that, I think. Uh, but the face of Bo has lived for millions of years without dying instead of thousands. Uh, another thing that it just made me thought, think about is, is that gate just some old green seer that's just kind of been stuck there, slowly aging but no, not dying? Is that the thing? <laughs> it's right. It's a it's a sentinel, just like the guy stuck in the ice. Someone whose whole job, someone like the Watchman, who's just kind of abandoned here and has to hold the line, and but yeah, can't even die, which is which is uh, even more horrifying. It's like the uh, the what the doorknob in Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> who has to has to always you know uh, be be woken up and be on service to to let people through the door. And it's yeah, it's uh, I love what you're saying, Manu, about all the kind of different uh, different traditions and different cultures that have objects and and areas like this. And it's that that great sense of of uh, being devoured, which can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean that you are you are entering a new world, a world that works by different rules. 
uh, a fairy tale world beyond the wall in terms of brand story. Uh, you know, there's I think it's definitely deliberate that the face in the black gate kind of resembles Blood Raven, who is is also very, kind of very old and, and stuck to the weirwood. And you get the kind of cannibalism motif that pops up in Bran's chapters in A Dance with Dragons. So he's being devoured whole by Blood Raven's way of looking at the world or what he wants for him. Anyway, you could kind of kind of think about it like that. But in terms of the history of the Black Gate, in terms of the history of the Nightforth, the, the being eaten alive thing could be pretty horribly literal if this is where knights, king, and queen were sacrificing people to the others, were giving people over to the others, was this passageway through the wall. Because while Cold Hands and presumably the White Walkers can't pass through, the, the Night's Watch themselves could. So when the Night's King story says that he bound his brothers to him with sorceries, maybe he, what he was having them do was sacrifice people here, was giving them up to this mouth. And that was kind of, it was a a way of just demonstrating what was going to happen to them, that they were being left alone to be devoured or, or transformed uh, by the White Walkers. And uh, I love I love the little detail of the, the tear coming out the eye and fall, you know, or something like a tear coming out the eye of the Weirwood and falling on Bran, indicating this kind of sorrow for, for what's going to happen to him, for his fate. If it is a green seer in there, he might see Bran's destiny coming and, and be sad about all the, the sacrifice and, and the cost of that. It reminds me there's a bit in the movie AI in the first scene when... One uh, guy who makes robots is showing off one of his robots to a bunch of uh, board executives, and he has the robot kind of open up its humanoid face. You can see the mechanism underneath, and it's very subtle, and you can't tell. You have to be watching it on a pretty decently sized uh, screen to tell, but when her, her, her humanoid face opens up, a little tear just falls out her tear duct and falls in her kind of robotic features. It's this little little subtle detail, but very haunting. I always liked, and this always reminds me of that. You have this kind of this bizarre, otherworldly, mystical thing, but that, that odd kind of intimacy at the end, I think really, really grounds you in it again. Yeah. And I think the dilemma or in terms of analyzing this is, will we come back here? Will we see the Black Gate again? Um, and that's a very interesting question. We've obviously talked a lot about Stannis being at the Night Fort. Um, you wonder if it has anything that will happen with Shireen. Will Melisandre burn the giant weirwood tree that's growing in the middle of it as an affront to her religion? Um, maybe there's this story where Davos tries to smuggle Shireen away from Stannis before he can burn her, but he can't get through the Black Gate. And then, you know, he goes through with the burning. You can imagine so many different things. Even Hodor sure. bumping his head makes me wonder what if Hodor holds this door open because that's there true. isn't a person of the Night's Watch with Bran and company escaping the others and he has to like physically like pry this mouth open and sacrifice himself in the process so like I said this is one of those things because we only see it in these two paragraphs we're basically able to run wild this can matter so much or not at all and basically every idea in between sounds like it could work Another theory that I kind of teased before is the whole cold hands theory. That's my favorite cold hands tinfoil theory, which is that brave Danny Flint is cold hands. And I first heard uh, of this theory from Noah, aka Samantha Tarly on Twitter, but I'm pretty sure they got it from somewhere else originally, uh, as the way things usually work in this <laughs> fandom. Uh, but anyway, there there aren't a lot of proof. Uh, when it comes to this theory, as with most cold hands theories, but I still like it. Uh, the list that of reasons that it could fit is that Danny Flint would have died a long time ago, like Leaf tells Brand that cold hands did. There's the connection to the Night Fort that we see in this chapter, and one of the houses Flint has a sigil with a black hand on it, like cold hands. But, mo but mostly I just like it because it would give Danny some so amount of agency in their own s story or song. And it would make them a true Night's Watch man. 
They might have been refused a place in the Night's Watch when alive by, you know, being killed. But in death, they can be a Night's Watchman. And I just like that idea. In the end, I don't think we'll find out who Coldhand is, and it probably won't matter. But I like this theory, because trans vibes. I like the, I like the, the bittersweet idea of the getting to yeah. fulfill yourself and control yourself and identity, but only in death. That life, that the life in Westeros wouldn't give this to you, so you have to... You have to embrace it in a kind of other world. Again, coming back to the idea of this, of this, the Nightfall as a, as a border, as a boundary point between worlds. It's into a world beyond the wall where, where Danny Flint, if if Danny Flint was uh, was cold hands or anyone else up there, would be able to live the life they want to live. I like that idea a lot. Also, think about the fact how north of the wall is a place where you do see more gender equality yeah, in terms true. of the free folk. Um, so it really works very nicely. All right, I think that's going to wrap us up for our episode on A Storm of Swords Brand 4. Lois, I was so excited we got to have you on for this one specifically. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And thanks to everyone for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review in your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Porkwenton on Twitter and Blue Sky. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb, on both of those sites. And you can also find me covering The Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. And Lo, where can the fine people find you? They can find me on Twitter at LoDeLinks with underscores between those words, or on Blue Sky at LoDeLinks with no underscores. Uh, and maybe sometime in the future on a f- podcast as well. Can't wait. It's going to be great. So, my most recent Star Wars episode is out for all of our $5 and above patrons, our fourth one on A New Hope, covering the introduction of Han Solo. Next week is going to be my next Lord of the Rings episode, covering my very favorite chapter in the story, Book 6, Chapter 8, The Scouring of the Shire. And then next time in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's A Storm of Swords, Daenerys V, in which she arrives at Meereen and Strong Belwis wins an initial victory, only for her other followers to mess it all up. Really should have just stuck with Belwis and Belwis alone. I'm just excited to see how much I've learned about Napoleon and the Army of the Orient <laughs> ahead of uh, Daenerys' arrival at Marine, because you're going to definitely be hearing about that. Heck yeah. We're, now I'm just picturing a Joaquin Phoenix hanging around Danny's camp. He'd fit in just fine. He could just be Daenerys. He could just totally see it. <laughs> I'm just picturing Joaquin Phoenix with a horrible Targaryen wig, like the Rhaegar wig, <laughs> just descending from the sky. I'm in. I'm in. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time for A Storm of Swords, a Daenerys 5.